You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. So there was a uh, Netflix documentary on Tony Robbins, on Tony Robbins. Uh, Tony Robbins, if you've ever seen him or know about him, he's a behemoth of a man, okay? He's six foot seven. He's um, a really, with a loud voice, uh, he's, he has a very large presence, and he's a motivational speaker, even though he says that he is not. Anyways, uh, I've known about him for many, many, many years, and his sphere of influence is actually really, really impressive. Uh, these are the people that he has coached. Okay, he has coached Bill Clinton, Princess Diana, Hugh Jackman. I'm I'm really impressed by that. Um, Mother Teresa, okay, Mother Teresa, Leonardo DiCaprio. I I, really, I think he started doing that, and then he got his Oscar. Um, Margaret Thatcher, and so many more. Like if you see the list, it's it's really it's really impressive. Um, I was really surprised when I saw Princess Diana and Mother Teresa, though. Anyways. In his documentary, he starts off by saying to the thousands who have paid, you know, five to six thousand dollars to to attend this week-long conference, he says to them in his booming voice, "There's a sea of people, and they're just in eager anticipation of every word that he's about to say." And he says this: "He says you are not broken, you are not broken." And he repeats that phrase throughout the entire conference: "You are not broken, you are not broken." In other words, he's saying you're not screwed up. You're not screwed up. You're just misguided. You're not screwed up. You're just, what is it, misdirected. You are maybe unmotivated. Perhaps you're even a bit unsure, but you're not a mess. You're not broken. You can pick yourself up. You can fix your problems. You have the willpower to do anything you put your mind to. And people are clapping, saying, yes, I now believe in myself. And he goes, because you are not broken. Now, the thing about motivational speakers or these positive life coaches, like many prosperity preachers, in fact, out there, who are really no different from Tony Robbins, is that while it may appear that they're addressing something something truly deep and profound in each person, they're actually invested in simply changing behaviors. That's really all it is. It's just changing the outside, modifying the outside behaviors. So it's like this. If you're lazy... Here are five steps to becoming more diligent. If you are maybe a bit you know, insecure and timid, then here's seven steps to overcoming your fears. Or maybe if you're filled with bitterness, then here's six steps to overcoming that bitterness and living a happier and fuller life. And so it becomes all about finding that courage within yourself, about pushing past your barriers of fear and insecurity so that you can become a better you. Because once you achieve diligence, once you achieve uh, boldness, once you achieve the drive to maybe, let's say, finish school or enter into that master's program or enter into a relationship or nail that job interview or whatever, but once you've overcome that problem, then and only then will you find yourself to be at peace with yourself and with the world around you. So the way it's understood is that the only problems we seem to have are problems that keep us from making more money or finding happiness. 
So when Tony Robbins asks someone to share something about their problems, they'll say, uh, they're shaking, and they say, I, I, I'm nothing. I'm messed up to wish that he would say, respond, looking at them, almost locking lips. That's how close he was with them. He says, no, you're not. You're not broken. You're magnificent. You're good. You're complete. You just need to find it within yourself. That's what he says. You just need to find that goodness within yourself. And look, here's the thing. I get the message behind all these motivational speakers. I do. In fact, when I was, when I was watching, I was like, I can become a better pastor. Right? It motivates you. Absolutely. It's like, but here's the thing. It's like going to the gym and having a trainer say, you can do it. Keep pushing. You got it in you. I believe in you. And it's motivating. And it'll help you maybe lift a little bit more weights or run that extra mile. But here's the problem that these guys don't know. We're not just dealing with, let's say, being overweight. We're dealing with cancer. We're dealing with cancer. And no amount of bench presses or yoga stretches or marathon runs will ever heal us of that. So if you listen to these kind of behavioral you know, therapists and do all that stuff, will it help you? Yeah, you might lose weight and look good. Will you have abs to show off in the summer? Probably. People will be pretty impressed. But will you be healed from the sickness that has infected our cells? Let's take this on a spiritual level. Will you be healed from the sickness that has infected your souls? No, you will not. And that's the problem with, this, with these superficial solutions. And so that's the problem with these superficial di diagnoses. You may not be an addict. You may not have weight issues. You may know how to be successful and make a lot of money. You may have even a very healthy marriage and have amazing kids that you've raised. Life may seem good. It may look good. But here's what the Word of God says different from the world. The Word of God says that we, we are all broken. That we're all broken. And nothing in this world will heal that brokenness. Nothing but a supernatural intervention from God. Only God can rescue us from that brokenness. And that's what today's text is talking about. So today I have two truths that I want to talk about, okay? The first is this. God, he wants you to see the depth of your sinfulness. Turn to your neighbor and say, he wants you to see the depth of your sinfulness. Some of you guys are like, I just met that person, and I'm telling that, right? Now, the thing I typically run across um, when speaking with a lot of professing believers is that they think they're really just not that bad. I'm not that bad, right? And, and quite frankly, I was one of them growing up. Now, here's the thing. I was one of them before the gospel took hold of me. I really thought I wasn't that bad. Yes, I slipped up from time to time. Sure, there are times where, man, it just got really bad that I may have repented and all this stuff. Yes, I believe I could have done better in certain areas of my life, and, but would I actually label myself as a bad person? No way. Uh-uh. And the reason I say that is because I was living in light of the wrong gospel. You see, the superficial or the wrong gospel says, you're not that bad. You're not that broken. Yes, Jesus is your Savior, and we're all very happy to celebrate about that, but in terms of being desperate for him, in terms of pining after him and yearning after him and being hungry for him, in terms of daily repentance, come on, you're not that bad. You don't really need to do that much. And so the reason I bought into this false gospel is because my eyes were constantly 
looking around rather than looking up. Constantly looking around rather than looking up. You see, when you just look at the people around you, you see a lot of things that either build you up or break you down. You see someone who's doing really well, and you see people who aren't doing really well. And so because our natural tendency is all about self-preservation and about trying to lift ourselves up, we typically fixate on those who aren't doing well. And when we do that, it makes us feel a little bit better about ourselves. I remember in college, a professor of mine, he would write on the board after the midterm or final exams, the number of A's and B's and so on. He wouldn't, he wouldn't, he wouldn't write the names, of course. He said we had three A's and four B's and so on and so forth. Now, <clears throat> even though I'm not a bad student, when I see that there were at least two people with D's or F's, it made me feel two emotions. One, sudden fear that I was one of the people who got the F. But the other emotion at the same time was a sense of relief that there was someone else who failed too. You get what I'm saying? Like, if I'm going to be called out as dumb, at least I got another dummy sitting next to me. Right? It's kind of like that saying, if me and a friend are being chased by a bear, I don't need to outrun the bear. I just need to outrun my friend. It's horrible, isn't it? But it's true. We feel that it's not that bad because our measure of goodness is selectively chosen among the messed up people around us. So when people hear, people who are like that hear this message of the true gospel, that we have all sinned and that we're all broken, we, we go, no, 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 we turn our nose upward and we say, says who? I'm not broken. I don't, really, I don't need what you all need. I am fine. I am fine. And this description of being wretchedly sinful, it does not fit me at all. No, no, no. You see, that's for that person and maybe for that person, but I'm okay. Now, if you've ever made a snowman and thinks of the movie Frozen, I've made many. If you ever build a snowman, you know all about the rolling technique, right? And what's, uh, while it's an effective technique, you'll soon realize how quickly you are unable to roll anymore, right? Because it gets big so fast, especially if you're working with the super sticky snow. So many times out of fatigue, I usually come up with a massive lower half and then a tiny midsection and a tiny, tinier head. As you read and study this passage, you'll realize that the sins described here were doing the same thing, hence the expression snowball effect. When it gets so big, you can't possibly handle it anymore. But what you'll see that is in the midst of our crazy snowballing of sin, how it's just escalating and growing and growing, in the midst of that, you'll see that God's mercy is also present. God's mercy is also present because while our sins may seem out of control, we'll see that God has been, in fact, in control the whole time. And so let's take a glimpse into Judah's life, okay? Okay, so this story really started out last chapter. Do you guys recall the gang type of mentality of Judah and his brothers, right? We learned about this a couple weeks ago. They hated Joseph so much for the favoritism that he received from his father and the dreams that he had that the brothers, they couldn't, maybe they really, they just wouldn't say even hello to, so, say hello to him. So as their hostility grew, they had murderous thoughts. I want to get rid of this brother. I hate him so much. He's really getting on my nerves. Let's, let's find a way to just get him away. 
And last week, like we, or a couple weeks, like we learned, they eventually sell him off as a slave. Then they keep lying. And their sin of deception and anger, it continues to destroy their father for years and years and years. But you see, that was only the beginning because here in this chapter, we find this one guy named Judah. And he ends up moving away from his family, away from his brothers and father. Now, we don't know exactly the reasons why, but some commentators speculate that maybe he just had it with the whole father grieving over the, over the loss of his son Joseph, and he just couldn't deal with it anymore. Or maybe because he valued his friendship with Hirah from Adullam. Regardless of the reason, him moving away separated him from the faith that he had. It separated him from the faith of his father and the covenant promises that were made to his great-grandfather Abraham. And so right then and there, you can immediately see the snowball effect beginning. So in verse 2, we, re- we read that Judah met and he married a Canaanite girl. Everyone say, oh, really? Right? Now here's the thing. I think by now, we all know that was a big mistake. Right? I, I-, I feel like all of you guys, one day you're just going to be like, you know, these Canaanites, I swear. Right? We know that Abraham went through great lengths to ensure that his son didn't marry a Canaanite girl. And then we also read that how Isaac commanded his son Jacob not to marry a Canaanite girl. And so it's really interesting how Judah marries a Canaanite girl. It's not like he was ignorant of this warning. In fact, from Genesis to Revelation, God has made it abundantly clear that he condemns marriage between believers and non-believers. But Judah didn't care. He didn't listen to his father. Instead, he listened to his friend, Hurrah. And so we read that Judah saw, okay, and then he took. There's a girl named Shua. He saw and he took a girl named Shua. Now the verb took in Hebrew often typically is a normal expression for getting married. So he took her, as in he married her. But when it's used in conjunction with the verb saw, that's when you get this overtone of lust. In other words, Judah saw some really hot girl, and he fell in lust with her, head over heels. He wanted her body more than he wanted her heart. He wanted to have sex with her more than a marriage with her. He wanted to satisfy his sexual appetite more than entering into a union that would honor God's command. And so this is really the beginning of Judah's waywardness because it was from this godless marriage that the death of his sinfulness really began to unfold. And so after getting married to someone who wanted nothing to do with God, Judah proceeded to raise up wicked sons. So... We've covered 37 chapters now, and I think we're all pretty well-versed in the wickedness of man, right? We all know that men can do some pretty stupid stuff and horrible things. But get this. Judah's firstborn son, Ur, when he became an adult, Judah got him a wife named Tamar. Now here's the thing. Ur was so wicked that God killed him. That's how wicked he was. God killed him. That's how messed up he was. God totally just destroyed him. But then Judah had another son named Onan. But this guy wasn't any better. And it's really at this point that we learn something about the, something called the leveret marriage. This is what it is, okay? Essentially, the laws of God, it forbade any type of marriage between a man and his sister-in-law. That's a no-no. But there was one exception. If that brother died childless, then according to the customs of that day, and also according to the biblical law of that time, a brother of the deceased 
should marry the widowed sister-in-law in order to give her a son in the name of that brother. Why? Because if this practice doesn't happen, then the deceased brother's social reputation and his name would cease to exist. One commentator said this, it was for the purposes of helping the deceased with social immortality. But not only that, it would help the poor widow because she'd be all by herself. It would help the poor widow to have her sons help her out in the future. Now here's the thing about Onan, the second son. Judah says, you know what? According to the law, you need to take over and, and, be, and get married to your sister-in-law and, and give her a child. Onan didn't like this requirement. You see, he didn't mind sleeping with her because he's a dog. But he did mind about this whole financial and splitting of his inheritance situation. He didn't want to share his portion, so he had sexual relations with Tamar, but he spilled his seed, making sure that he, she never got pregnant. He was doing wicked things on top of that too, and so God obviously was displeased with him for his disobedience, and he struck him dead. So clearly Judah wasn't really interested in training up his sons in the Lord. I mean, why would he? There was no indication of Judah pursuing after a life of holiness. But then we see the kind of man Judah was when he began blaming Tamar for the wickedness of his sons. Now that's another thing about sin, okay? It's intricately tied with pride. So if you ever get caught or called out, the first thing you do is typically is to shift blame onto someone else or try to justify your behavior. Then it goes to show that you might be, if that happens, it goes to show that you might be actually oblivious to your own wickedness. And people who shift blame on others are people who have no understanding between the connection of sin and God's judgment. Because here's the thing, hear me out. These past 21 days, we had special early morning prayer service, right? And one of those mornings, I recall, we sung a song that quoted 2 Chronicles 7.14. And the song goes like this, or the verse goes like this. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will hear, and I will heal their land. Now here's the thing. If seeing that song or reading that verse makes you pray for the hearts of those around you, or maybe you start praying for the Trump administration, or maybe you only pray for the Planned Parenthood abortionists, or what have you, but if that song or that verse does not force you on your knees in humble repentance, then you might be oblivious to your own wickedness. And by the way, in the verse, God says, it's if my people, if my people, which are called by my name, that means God, he's not asking the world to humble themselves and turn from the wicked ways. God is asking people like me and people like you, people who are considered his people, people who are his church to call out his name. It's the church who needs to repent. It's the church that needs to seek his face. It's the church, the bride of Christ, that needs to humble themselves and pray. Do you hear me? That's what God is saying. But what did Judah do? He says, no, no, it's not me. It's Tamar. She's the reason. She's the sinner. If it weren't for you, Tamar, my sons would still be alive and doing well. But that's what sin does, the sin of pride, the sin of rebellion, the sin of disobedience. It just gets bigger, and we're oblivious to its seriousness. 
We're always on the lookout for obvious sins like adultery or gossip or anger, or murder, things like that. But the sins of blame shifting or self-righteousness or disobedience are things that we're just so good at justifying that before we know it, it'll destroy our lives and the walk that we have with God. But that's why in, our mind, in the midst of our snowballing sin, we have to seek after God's mercy. And we have to ask God to reveal or I should say force us to see the sinfulness of our hearts. So back to the story. Judah, he displayed terrible injustice towards his daughter-in-law, Tamar. She was twice widowed. But not only that, he blames her for her son's death. But now he refuses to take care of her. The thing was this. After all that culturally, and especially considering his resources and his status, she was his responsibility. He had the duty to make sure that she was taken care of. But what did he do? He sends her off to see her family. So now she's someone else's problem. And another thing, he doesn't release her to go get married to someone else. No, instead he bounds her with a promise that when his third son, Shelah, becomes of age, she could marry him. But we all know that he never really intended to have Tamar marry his son. No, Judah just wanted Tamar out of his sight because out of sight means out of mind. He didn't care of his wickedness if it was destroying her or not. So years later, Shelah, the third son of Judah, is all grown up. But the promises of marrying Tamar was all forgotten. You see, Judah's wife, own wife, she had died. So where was Tamar? She was back at home, and she was mourning. She has been mourning for years. She has been grieving for years. Why? Because her husbands have died. She was a widow, and so she was still living and destined at that time until she remarries to continually just mourn and grieve as a widow. But where was Judah? Because his wife died more recently than Tamar's husband's, and yet we see Judah here ready to party. So it was sheep shearing time. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's sheep shearing time. <laughs> you guys don't even know what I'm about to say about that too. This was a Canaanite festival that was all about sex. How dare you guys? Just kidding. This festival, it was. This festival encouraged fornication because doing this would be a worship to the God of fertility. So here we have Judah, and he's walking around. And how did Tamar trap him? Well, here's the thing. I doubt if Judah was an honorable, God-fearing man of holiness and purity that he would have fallen into her trap. But it seems like this, that she knew exactly what kind of man he was. So Tamar dressed up as a prostitute. In fact, she dressed up as a shrine prostitute. The difference between regular prostitutes and shrine is that shrine prostitutes, they had a veil over their faces. And so she makes a deal with Judah for her services. Judah was willing to pay a baby or kid goat, and she got his personal seal, cord, and staff as kind of a collateral of sorts. So Judah sleeps with a prostitute. In other words, he sleeps with his daughter-in-law. And he doesn't recognize her, and she becomes pregnant. When Judah went home, he made good on his promise to pay her a goat, and so he sent his friend with the goat. Like, how interesting, by the way, that he was so willing to honor his promise to a prostitute, but he didn't care at all about his promise to his own daughter-in-law. That's how twisted he was. Well, Hirah couldn't find her. In fact, no one's ever heard of her. And so Judah reasons, well, <clears throat> she had her, you know, she had her stuff. She, she could keep my stuff if she wants. 
I don't want to go back and potentially get humiliated. It's kind of like this. It's like a successful businessman who forgets his credit card in a brothel and he's too embarrassed to go back for it. So do you see how twisted his priorities were? Do you see where his fears were? Judah was far more concerned about the opinions of the world, how people would perceive him more than the judgment of God. He was more concerned about what you would think than what God would think. He was more concerned about what people thought of him than what God thought. That's what sin does. It becomes about the people around you more than the God above you. So what happens next? Judah suddenly hears that Tamar is pregnant, and he's mad. He's furious. You see, after years of not caring about her, ignoring his promises to give her a husband, now suddenly with this news, he's mad and he's going to make an example out of her. Do you see how ridiculous he's being? Get this. After all these years of him saying to her, I don't care about you. Leave me. Get away from my presence. You don't belong to me. Now with the possibility of his reputation, of his name on the line, she's suddenly under his authority. And so he commands that she brought, be brought and burned to stake. And this is the worst kind of you know, self-righteous hypocrisy. He was willing to put her to death for the very same sin he committed himself. But before, well, we know that Tamar, she was smart, wasn't she? She was shrewd, and she was waiting for this day. So as she was being brought out to be punished, she sent word to Judah, I am pregnant by the man who owns these. See if you recognize this seal, cord, and staff these are. And you can just imagine her mic dropping, right? And then just kind of waddling off because she was pregnant. <laughs> and then suddenly, it became so obvious of how his sins had snowballed that he could no longer handle it. And then he confessed, or you can even say he repented right then and there. She is more righteous than I. Literally, is translated, she is righteous and I am not. I am messed up. I am broken. She has been living in a way that has been faithful, and I have been faithless. She has been good, and I have been wicked. She has been following in obedience, and I have been disobedient and rebellious. She is righteous, and I am not, and I'm now seeing the reality of my unrighteousness. This was a powerful moment in the life of Judah. Remember, Judah probably took great pride in knowing that he was a direct descendant of the great Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He probably felt entitled and thought he was morally upstanding descendant who could do no wrong and who was protected by his family name. But this is where he went terribly wrong. He failed to see the reality of his sins. I don't care if you come from a Christian family. I don't care if you come to church every single Sunday. And I don't care if you memorize entire scripture, both in Hebrew and in Greek. But if you fail to see the reality of your sins, then you will miss the mark. You have missed the mark. You see, God, he wanted to use Judah. But in order for him to use Judah... God knew that he had to come face to face with the depth of his sinfulness. You see, in God's mercy, he will either show you the greatness of your sin or allow you to sin greatly in order that you may see it. May we all hope and pray that through the lens of the gospel that we see the greatness of the sin rather than living a life of sinning greatly. Amen? When we pronounce judgment on others, God in his mercy will one day allow you to see that you are, in fact, pronouncing judgment upon yourself as well. So where's the grace in all this? Turn to your neighbor and say, where's the grace? That's my second and final point. God says, surprise, here's grace. 
That's literally my second point. <laughs> surprise, here's grace. I always know when people are trying to surprise me. I, 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 I know. My, my spider senses are constantly tingling. I've had people say this. I've had actually someone, else, someone come to me and say, Hey, Pastor David, um, can you come with me downstairs? Like, I have, I have something to show you, and it's really important that you follow me, like, now. Um, so if it's near or on my birthday, any invitation is typically easily foreseen. But I have to say, last year, you guys actually got me. You guys actually got me partially because I completely forgot that it was my birthday. Now, the thing about surprises in our lives is that they're typically expected, right? Like on our birthdays, you can expect a party, a gift, or a text, or whatever. You can always rely on good old Facebook to say, happy birthday. But let me talk about God's grace. His grace is unexpected because if you know anything about his grace, is that it's unexpected because it is undeserved. You get that? And we see that in this story. Here's a surprise. God surprises us by using Tamar to preserve his covenant promises. So here's the thing about people like Tamar. She was an outsider to Judah's family. In fact, she was a Canaanite. Then she manipulated and she schemed to have illicit sex. And this in turn brought scandal into Judah's life and name. So it may seem like Tamar, although victimized for sure, was still a pretty bad person. Pretty bad for what she did. It appears that Tamar is the only one, however, who actually cared about the future of this family, though. How was that? Judah's wife was dead. He wasn't going to have any more kids. Judah's two sons were dead, but no heirs to continue on with their names. There was no indication that Shelah was going to marry Tamar, but according to their culture, it was every right to the mother of the firstborn of the family. So Tamar pursues what she knows to be right even if we don't like her method. So what's the surprise? Judah was God's chosen one. Judah was God's chosen one. Get this, through all the wickedness, from all the scheming, we see that from Judah's union with Tamar comes Perez. And from the line of Perez, eventually King David is born. And from King David's line, the Messiah comes. Get this, we can assume that the sons of Jacob are with the Lord today. That the sons of Abraham are with the Lord today, I mean. That they're standing there today as witnesses to God's amazing grace because they have all in one way or another, they failed miserably as sons of the covenant. They married unbelievers. In fact, they behaved like unbelievers. They failed in obedience. They were deceptive. But we know after all that, they realized their brokenness and they fell at the feet of God's redemptive grace. Folks, you see, even the worst of sinners can enter heaven by the grace of God. No one is too wicked for the grace of God to take hold of. Maybe there's people in your life, family or friends, who you feel like giving up on. You shared the gospel, you pleaded, you prayed for them, but they fought against your faith for so long. They've always contested you. They've always questioned your devotion and perhaps even mocked your practices. The ultimate surprise of God's grace is that Jesus came to save those types of people the people who are against God, people who are like you, perhaps, before you met Christ. God's in the business of changing hearts of stones into flesh, from changing deadness into life. You see, nothing is impossible for God, and no one is too wicked for his grace. 
In fact, in Jesus' genealogy, there are four women mentioned. And by the way, women are never mentioned in, God's, uh, in the genealogy of God's people except in Matthew 1. And get this, all four women mentioned were Gentile women. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And what's so amazing is that Jesus' earthly ministry was consistent with this type of lineage. Who did Jesus hang out with? He, hung out, he didn't hang out with the theologians. He didn't hang out with the reputable people. He hung out with the Zacchaeuses and the Matthews, the tax collectors. Jesus, he hung out with the Samaritan women, Samaritan women with, with all those husbands who was a married to a single one of them. Jesus, he cared for the Gentile Roman soldier sick boy. He cared for the unclean woman who everyone avoided. He cared for the little girl who had died. He cared even for those 10 ungrateful lepers. He cared for the children who sang their songs to him, even if it irritated the chief priest. I think what has become a problem with us as American Christians is much like what we hear from false gospels is that we're not that broken. And the issues that we do have aren't all that bad. So we've forgotten what it means to be desperate for God. Because we've grown accustomed to comparing it to the sins of others rather than comparing our sins to the holiness of God. So, no Tony Robbins. You may help people kick a habit, but only the gospel of Jesus kicks people out of hell. And who are the ones who get saved? It's the ones who admit they are broken and confess that they are wicked and sinful. And when we realize how undeserving we are of anything good, it is in that sweet surrender that we see the surprise of God's amazing grace in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Bow with me. If we can't or we are unwilling to see the depth of our sins, then it is impossible to see the glory of the cross. If we are unwilling to submit of our depravity and our sinfulness and our wretchedness, then you cannot see the greatness and the authority of Jesus Christ. You see, God is calling us today through his word that many of us right now are perhaps in a dilemma where we're thinking, yes, I'm a Christian, but you know what? I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. Why, Pastor David, why do you keep saying that I'm that? No, I'm not saying it. The perfection and the holiness and the majesty of God is saying, he's saying, this is how far away you are from me. The smallest of sins is enough to cast you out of my presence for eternity. And yet we, what do we do? We minimize our sins and say it's not that bad and the reason why we do that is because we keep comparing it to those who are considered really bad those who are considered social pariahs those Hitlers and those Pol Pots and those Mao's of the day and the Stalins of the day at least I didn't do what he did at least I didn't do what she did at least I'm not like this at least I'm not negligent or incompetent like that at least I'm not a murderer or a thief or, or anything like that no It's very easy to justify our sins when all we do is look around us. But God is saying, I am not allowing you into my presence based on how you are against each other. 
you are not allowed into my presence because I want nothing to do with the sins of your life. And until we are willing to admit that, until we are willing to admit the holiness of God, the greatness of God, the perfection of God, then what are we doing? Then all we're doing is living in a superficial type of Christian life and and that doesn't cut it. If all you think right now, I just need to be a better person or a good person or more moralistic, if that's all you think you need to be, then get in line with all the other religions of the world. Friends, brothers and sisters, I want to give you guys a moment today, now that you've heard the word of God preached, that you would surrender yourself before the Holy One and earnestly judge your own heart. I'm not going to judge you. I can't judge you. I don't know you. But you know yourself. Maybe you're not a horrible, horrible person, but maybe there is a lot of self-righteousness. Maybe there's a lot of pride. Maybe there's a lot of I'm fine and I don't really need God all too much. That is something that we have to desperately plead and surrender before him right now. Let's take this time and pray. And in anticipation, know that God and the way that he works surprises us with his grace each and every day. And so ask him for his new mercies. Let's pray.